right, well, good morning again to you. Happy Lord's Day. And if you have a Bible, I hope that you do, please turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 28. 1 Samuel chapter 28, making our way through 1 Samuel, finish up in the next couple of weeks. Uh, and then we will take a short break, uh, look, at, uh, look at a couple of different things, uh, uh, and then, uh, <clears throat> then we'll make our way back into 2 Samuel and finish that up. Um, but... Um, 1 Samuel chapter 28, 1 Samuel 28, uh, there will be, uh, we'll read the entire chapter, so just want to make you aware of that, so it's 25 verses, and I simply point that out, because our custom here is to stand as we honor the reading of God's holy and written word, so if you're physically able to do so, let me invite you to stand one more time as we, uh, as we honor the reading of God's holy and written word. 1 Samuel chapter 28, we'll begin in verse 1, go through verse 25. So the whole chapter, hear the word of the Lord that's given to us this morning. And it came to pass in those days that the Philistines gathered their armies together for warfare to fight with Israel. And Achish said to David, Know assuredly that you shall not go out with me to battle, you and your men. And David said to Achish, Surely you shall know what your servant can do. And Achish said to David, Therefore will I make you a keeper of my head forever, and as literally his bodyguard. Now Samuel was dead, and all Israel had lamented him, and buried him in Ramah, even in his own city. And Saul had put away those that had familiar spirits and the wizards out of the land. And the Philistines gathered themselves together, and came and pitched in Shunem. And Saul gathered all of Israel together, and they pitched in Gilboa. And when Saul saw that the host of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart greatly trembled. And when, Samuel and when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, or answered him not, neither by dreams, nor by Urim, nor by the prophets. Then said Saul to his servants, Seek me out a woman that has a familiar spirit, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servants said to him, Behold, there is a woman and that has a familiar spirit at Endor. And Saul disguised himself and put on other raiment. And he went, and two men with him, and they came to the woman by night, and he said, I pray you, divine to me by the familiar spirit, and bring, me up, uh, bring him up to me whom I shall name to you. And the woman said to him, Behold, you know what Saul has done, how he has cut off all those who have familiar spirits, and the wizards, that's literally the necromancers, out of the land. Wherefore, then, then, then lay you a snare for my life to cause me to die. And Saul swore to her by the Lord, saying, As the Lord lives, there shall no punishment happen to you for this thing. And then said the woman, Whom shall I bring up to you? And he said, Bring me up Samuel. And when the woman saw Samuel, she cried with a loud voice. And the woman spoke to Saul, saying, Why have you deceived me? You are Saul. And the king said to her, Do not be afraid, or be not afraid, for what saw you? And the woman said to Saul, I saw gods ascending out of the earth. And he said to her, What form is he of? And she said, An old man comes up, and he is covered with a mantle. And Saul perceived that it was Samuel, and he stooped with his face to the ground, and he bowed himself. And Samuel said to Saul, Why have you disquieted me to bring me up? And Saul answered, I am sore distressed, for the Philistines make war against me, and God has departed from me and answers me no more, neither by prophets nor by dreams. Therefore I have called you, that you may make known to me what I shall do. Then Samuel said, or then said Samuel, why then do you ask of me, seeing the Lord has departed from you and has become your enemy? 
And the Lord has done to him as he has spoke by me, for the Lord has rent, that is, torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor, even to David. Because you obeyed not the voice of the Lord, nor executed his fierce wrath upon Amalek, therefore has the Lord done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will also deliver Israel with you into the hand of the Philistines, and tomorrow shall you and your sons be with me. The Lord also shall deliver the host of Israel into the hands of the Philistines. And then Saul fell immediately all, uh, all along this prostrate on the earth and was sore afraid because of the words of Samuel. And there was no strength in him, for he had eaten no bread all day nor all the night. And the woman came to Saul and said, and saw that, there was, that he, was, he was sorely troubled. And he said to him, Behold, your handmaid has obeyed your voice, and I have put my life in my, in my hand, and I have hearkened or listened to your words which you spoke to me. Now therefore I pray... Hearken or listen also to the voice of your handmaid and let me set a morsel of bread before you and eat that you may have strength and then you can go your own way. But he refused and said, I will not eat. But his servants together with the woman compelled him and he hearkened to her voice. So he arose from the earth and sat upon the bed and the woman and had a fat calf in the house and she hasted and killed it and took flour and kneaded it and it did and did bake unleavened bread thereof. And she brought it to Saul, or and she brought it before Saul and before his servants, and they ate. And then they rose up and went away that night. Let's pray, Father. As we look at your word this morning, may you be honored and glorified in this time. By the power of your Holy Spirit, we pray for wisdom. We pray for your help. We pray for your guidance and your enablement to understand what is here. And uh, God, it is a, uh, a difficult text indeed, but uh, we pray for your grace and your wisdom. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Well, I've said before and I'll say again, desperation is a horrible tyrant. Desperation is a horrible tyrant. And you say, well, what do you mean by that, Pastor? Well, here's what I mean by that. I mean that desperation leads to all sorts of different actions and not always good actions, oftentimes not good actions because we're so desperate to get an answer or to find our way or to do whatever else that we don't take the time that is necessary to seek, the, seek God and seek his advice that we just simply act, right? Uh, we've got to be doing something, so we act. But unfortunately, desperation is a horrible tyrant. It, it, it maims and it destroys very quickly. And out of 1 Samuel 28, this is part two, so let me just re- recap just a little bit. This is the second sermon and the last sermon for 1 Samuel 28. So we've seen before how earlier in the chapter that <clears throat> the tyranny of desperation was something that we should clearly, we need to clearly beware of, right? That's what, to what uh, Saul and, and uh, to what Saul is clearly an example of is that, that desperation uh, was, uh, was clearly uh, in view with Saul and his problems in verses 1 and 2. And, and obviously David also had overplayed his hand and he is now with the Philistines. And now, he's, now they're saying, well, you've got to go with us to war, David. And David says, oh, okay, that sounds like a great idea. And so we see that there's all kinds of desperation that has led to all sorts of bad decisions, which now leaves lots of people in lots of different uh, difficulties, if you will. And we see that in verses 1 and 2. We also, though, we also see that the fact that uh, desperation can often lead to further desperation in verses 3 through 6, because um, as a result, we see Samuel being dead. Saul's last line to the Lord has been cut off. Uh, Saul is now on his own, and he is scared because both enemies, 
uh, David and the Philistines are now gathered against him and camped against him. And we've seen that they were, they were aggressive. We've seen that Saul has been overwhelmed by fear. Uh, then the silence of God has literally driven Saul to madness. And then we saw in verses 7 through 14 that desperation often leads us to act in desperation. And that's exactly what Saul did. And this is where I want to pick up in this passage in 7 through 14 is that desperation often does lead us to act with further and in in further desperation. This is why Saul sought out this woman. He sought her out. Uh, he, He has sought out someone because God has cut him off. And he doesn't, he doesn't answer, right, by the prophets or uh, doesn't answer by the priests. Of course, Saul has slaughtered all the priests at Nob, so why would God answer through the priests? The only priest uh, of the Levitical line that's left is with David. But Saul has acted with desperation, and he now seeks out a woman and, and, and inquires of her. He is told by one of his servants, hey, Saul, we've got, a, we've got one for you. We've had her on the line for a while, but uh, we just haven't told anybody. We've been waiting for a time, so here you go. And so they go, and they make their way behind enemy lines. Um, the, the text is clear that uh, because of where the Philistines pitched their tent, um, indoor would have been about 25 miles or so uh, beyond enemy, into enemy territory where the Philistines were. So Saul hides himself, and they go on a secret quest he, 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 is, uh, he is compulsively working all things out. And we see in verses 10 and 11 how Saul has become mad because of his sin. He, he has talked to this woman. He's now appeared to her and he's now talked to her trying to hide himself. She's being a little, a little scared, right? Because after all, she knows the penalty. Uh, all the necromancers and all of the others uh, who practice these types of offenses have been purged from the land by Saul. And so she says, well, you know what? Uh, I, I don't know that I, I want to do this because after all, maybe you're a spy or, or whatever the case may be. Whatever, she is still apprehensive. And she says, I'm not sure. And then Saul says something magnificent, doesn't he? He says, well, here, if this makes you feel better, I'll make you a promise by the Lord God of Israel. How hypocritical, right? Like, okay, I'm going to seek something out that God has clearly and expressly forbidden, but I, I swear to you by God himself, I won't have you killed. I won't tell on you. How utterly ridiculous. But, but if we're being honest, our sin is no less hypocritical at times, right? We, we find ourselves in, overcome and overwhelmed by our own sin. And we find that in the midst of our own sin that, that we play the hypocrite as well very oftentimes. I mean, I, I've done it. I'm sure you have done it as well. We say one thing with our lips and we do something completely different with our actions. And it's easy. It's easy to do. And Saul plays the hypocrite here. And he even, he even draws other people into this complicity to sin, doesn't he? Because he's drawn two of his own men into this, 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 this idea, this darkness that, by the way, it, it, it is throughout the text. It, it constantly talks about, uh, it says at the very end of the chapter, 
um, it talks about, and it was night, right? It was, uh, uh, and they went away that night, literally into darkness. They waited until darkness to find this woman. Uh, and then, then it was shrouded in secrecy and again darkness. And the reality being, uh, the, the symbolism being that they have, um, they, have, they have given themselves over to darkness instead of to light. And Saul has completely been driven mad by his sin. And so we see that Saul, even though uh, he, is, he has drawn himself into a web of lies and deceit. And it is funny that this witch, uh, she, witch is, is not the right word for what she is. Um, because we, we think of, you know, the, um, the cackling old hags, you know, around, the, around the, the pots and things and, you know, throwing in eyes of newt and all this other silly stuff. This is not necessarily what she was. Um, it is interesting that, that she is very undiscerning, though, and we'll get to her in just a minute. But she's very undiscerning, very naive. I mean, this is an old woman, but she's very naive. By the way, isn't it interesting that uh, Saul is seeking out counsel from someone who can't even see that it's him. <laughs> He's seeking out secret knowledge from a woman who can't even divine the fact or can't even tell the fact that this is the king of Israel. Yeah, it's often funny, isn't it? And I can see the future. Well, what's going? Well, how did you not know that that was going to happen? Well, I just didn't see it. Yeah, right. Tell me another story, right? It's a silly thing. Um, it's a, she's naive and undiscerning. And it's interesting that oftentimes we can be the same way. Um, it, it is interesting, though, that we do have to know that, um, that oftentimes we treat the Lord, if we're not careful, we can treat the Lord the same as Saul, with the same irreverence. I heard a story several years ago of a, of a farmer in, in, uh, out in the, mid, in the Midwest who was, uh, who was uh, an avowed um, hater of God. He, he just had no use for God, had no use for the church, had no use for, for any, any talk of Jesus or God. He would regularly plow his fields on Sunday morning uh, just, to, um, just to shake his fist in the face of the church that's, that was right across from the field, from his, uh, from his field, uh, right across the field. And he would regularly do this. And on and on this went year after year after year. Until one year, um, October came, and the farmer had the finest crop that he ever had. And he took out uh, an advertisement in the local newspaper, and he began talking about that he certainly can't believe in God if God would give him the finest and best crop that he ever had. Well, shortly thereafter, a response came from the pastor who, upon talking with him, told him, and I quote, Sir, God does not settle his accounts in October. God, God often allows us to run astray and amuck throughout life because he doesn't often settle his accounts in our Octobers. He settles them and he calls us to, to, into account, maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but soon. And he does. And this is the reality for Saul here. Saul, Saul is, is running wild. He's running amok. He's running away from God. He's, had, he's abandoned God. He wants nothing from God. As a matter of fact, the only reason we see in the text that he even wants an answer from God is because he, he, he's, scared. He's, he's scared he is going to die. That's it. That's what he wants. He wants to know if everything is going to be okay. And so we see then, and picking up in verse 12, don't we? 
that Saul is um, um, upon the woman finally taking Saul's words. She says, okay, who do you want me to bring up? And he simply says, Samuel. Now, this woman has no way of knowing who. I mean, Samuel was, it was a very common name. And he didn't say the prophet Samuel. He just said Samuel. So I'm sure she's like, okay, well, let me go talk to, talk to my familiar spirit. And let's, let's conjure up somebody named Samuel. And let's get as close as we can to that reality. But that's not the way this goes. And I will be honest with you. This text leaves us with a lot more questions than there are answers, honestly. I mean, I'm not going to lie to you. There are a lot of questions that are left in this text, and the Bible does not necessarily give us answers. I mean, there are some answers I think we can, we can grab from the text, we can glean from the text, we can, is implied in the text, but in the end, um, it's not very clear uh, about what all is going on here. So what I want to do is I want to answer a couple of questions for you uh, from the text, constrain ourselves to the text, only let the text say what the text says, not not my conjecture or your conjecture or any other conjecture. So let me ask you this. Is witchcraft real? Is it real? Like in our day of science and, and, and moder- modernity of our modern times, our post-modernity, right, where, where your truth is your truth and my truth is my truth and, and everything else, uh, uh, do we really think that that there are people who practice witchcraft and is it real well certainly there are people that practice witchcraft and yes it is real you say well now wait a minute pastor I mean how how can you say that witchcraft is real well let me tell you something God did not prohibit and warn his people from doing this because it was make-believe he did not ban the practice of witchcraft and necromancy and all all the other all the other stuff that he forbid in to the nation of Israel because it was make believe. Right? This isn't make believe. And he did not ban it and he did not warn his people from adopting the philosophy of the world around them because this all was just some made up hoodoo. There is real spiritual power in the forces of darkness. And yes, while there are many so-called mediums who, have, who are just a bunch of hoaxers, yes, I, I readily acknowledge that. Man, if you have good people skills you can be and, and read people, you can, be a great, you can be a great medium. But we're not talking about the hoaxers. We're talking about people who really do have, who really do have. We're not talking about some creepy theatrical experience either, right? We're not talking about common guesswork, common sense guesswork, or anything like that. We are talking about people who regularly and fully have given themselves over to communicating with the forces of darkness. Do they exist even today? Yes, they do. Do they have real power? Not in and of themselves, but yes, there is real power in the forces of darkness. And it is interesting that witchcraft is, is very intriguing to most people even to those of uh, those who would call themselves postmodern people, and Satan catches a great many victims by the hook of well, promised power, promised. You know what? Just do a couple things, and you can have my power, or this power, or that power. You can cast curses and spells and all sorts of foolishness, right? Witchcraft is very intriguing. Quite honestly, it can be, and it is to a lot of people. But it is interesting here that the witch here, she's not, she's not uh, some crumpled up old hag that we picture in, uh, in, in, at Halloween, is it? No, 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 not at all. She's a nice lady. 
she's a nice lady. She is an older lady, and truthfully, she probably looks like just a lot of people's grandma. She's a very nice woman, and she's very trusting, very naive, and she's a very nice woman. She goes so far as to entertain Saul and to feed him and to watch over him. And it's interesting that where God had abandoned him, the only person that actually is being nice to him is the pagan necromancer. Right? And so really, in reality, the point of the text isn't, isn't about the woman. The point of the text is her, because her powers are ultimately pointless, because it's not her that's acting here, because she goes to ask her familiar spirit. But what happens? God answers. God does something that she was not expecting at all to happen. And so the, the point of her powers or not really are pointless. But did she have them? Yes, she most certainly did. She most certainly did have some type of dark, dark consultation with dark forces. And she could, in fact, conjure up and meet with her familiar spirit. So here's a second question, though. Is this Samuel? Is this Samuel in the text? Because, I mean, you would be, you would, or maybe you wouldn't be, but you would be just blown away at the number of pastors and scholars as I prepared for this that I read and just consulted just to read their thoughts who really thinks that all this woman was doing was pulling a great big hoax on this woman or that it was a demon who was coming and was was pretending to be Samuel but that's not what the text says now how do I know that well I know that because the text says First, she says, I saw God's ascending, or literally a God coming up out of the earth. That's what she says, right? Out of Sheol. That's her, that's her response. It's something she has never seen before. Um, and it's a way for the writers of the Old Testament to describe um, um, God bringing back someone here, Samuel, out of the, the, uh, out of the, out of, uh, the holding place of the righteous dead. It is a way for, her, for, God, for, for the writer to describe that. But notice that Samuel does not speak through her. He does not, she does not speak. It is not her that's speaking. Samuel is not speaking through her because notice this. In verse 15 and 16, what does it say? What does it say? Samuel said. And in verse 20, because of the words of Samuel does not say that he spoke through her. She did not actually have any part of this. As a matter of fact, I think a great case can be made that she was so scared by what takes place here that she flees the scene. And you say, well, Pastor, how do you get that from the text? Well, look at the text where it says later, after the encounter is over, and the woman came to Saul. If she's right there in the room, why would she come to Saul? After the encounter was over, she came back into the room. This was, a, this was a work of God. This was not the work of a medium or a necromancer. This was a work of God. A, a miracle of God in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, whereby God himself brought Samuel himself back. Saul at first doesn't see him, but at some point God makes Samuel visible to Saul. And he speaks and interacts with Saul. And it's amazing because it says twice that Saul does what? 
He bows himself to the earth at the point one and point two. He literally prostrates himself. You see, the point of all of this in God's work is to completely bring Saul at last in complete humility before him. That's the point. Saul has acted with so much pride, with so much envy, with so much disgrace, with so much contempt for God and his people that God at last brings Saul to his knees in humility. I think those are the two pressing questions. There may be other questions, but I think those are the two most pressing questions from that text. But I will go on to say this. There's, a, there's another part to all this, and that is that when I say that desperation is a, is a, is a horrible tyrant, it is because it does not often contemplate the consequences, does it? It is interesting that the woman herself, the pagan necromancer, actually rebukes Saul. A pagan rebukes the king of God's chosen people. But then Saul is rebuked by Samuel, is he not? He is rebuked by Samuel. In verse 15, what does it say? It says, And Samuel said to Saul, Why have you disquieted me? Or that's literally, Why have you disturbed me to bring me up? And Saul said, I am sore distressed, or I am greatly distressed. For the Philistines make war against me, and God is departed from me and answers me no more neither by prophets nor by dreams. Therefore, I have called you that you may make known to me what I shall do. And notice the the interaction here. And it's really the same interaction that if we're not careful, we can fall into, isn't it? Because there there is an action, and then there's a rebuke. And then instead of being honest, what what does Saul do? He starts making excuses. He says, well, you know, Samuel, I really wouldn't have bothered you, but... God's not answering me. God has forsaken me. God has abandoned me. I don't know what to do. No one will counsel me. No one will guide me. No one will help me. And Samuel doesn't buy it a bit, does he? But instead of being honest, what does, Sam, what does Saul do? Saul starts making excuses. By the way, it's the same thing Saul has always done. Going back to the point of, of Amalek and being disobedient to, to not destroy the Amalekites as he was commanded... Saul was what? Saul was making excuses. And just like last time, there are severe consequences this time. In verses 16 through 19, I think we see that clearly. Notice what Samuel says to Saul. First, he tells him in verse 16, the Lord has become your enemy. In 17 and 18, he says, David will be the king. Right? The message hasn't changed. Thirdly, this has changed though. You will die. This is what's changed. God has ultimately said, you will die. In 1 Chronicles, it's very clear. As you go later, in, later on in 1 Chronicles, it's clear that God, that God says through the Chronicler, Saul was killed for this offense. God killed Saul because of this, seeking out the necromancer in this offense. But then fourthly, right, Samuel tells Saul there are consequences for rebellion. There are consequences for rebellion against God. And the same as Saul told him, Samuel told him in 1 Samuel chapter 12. How the mighty have fallen. How the mighty truly have fallen at this point. 
The once proud, arrogant, boastful king has been brought upon his face, literally eating dirt before the spirit of Samuel that has been brought back by God. How the mighty have fallen. In verse 23, there is utter helplessness and a complete hopelessness. And just like a man sentenced to death gets a final meal, so Saul gets a final meal. Served served by a pagan woman, a necromancer. A final meal. And the meal that she serves him, honestly, is a meal that's fit for a king. The only problem is Saul is not fit to be king. A meal fit for a king, but Saul is not fit to be king. And the chapter closes with the poignant words, then they rose and went away that night. Not a lot of hope here. Not a lot of hope left for Saul. I mean, Saul has, I mean, I, I'm not sure Saul's probably slept a whole lot the rest of the night. Had better, even though he had his belly full and he was tired, uh, awaiting the, 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 the great day of judgment the next day in which he and his sons would die. But I will say this, our story is not like Saul's story, at least it doesn't have to be. You see, because we can see clearly in 1 Samuel 28, Christ. You say, now wait a minute, where in the world is Jesus Christ in this text? Well, let me show you a couple of different comparisons here. Unlike Saul, who was the wicked king, Jesus is our great high king who rules with truth, compassion, obedience and love for God the Father and over us, his people, who he tenderly cares for. Unlike Saul, who was wicked and cared only for himself, Jesus, our great high king, rules with truth and compassion and obedience and love for God, always love for God the Father and rules over us with tender compassion. Second of all, unlike Saul, the wicked king who sinned, Jesus Christ willingly agreed to have his father turn his own face away as Jesus the Son tasted the wrath of God for our sin. Christ never sinned. So unlike Saul who died for his own sin, Jesus Christ died for our sin. for The sins of his people, the sins of his elect people. Thirdly, Unlike Saul, who had to resort to consulting necromancers and those who who thought they were contacting the dead, Jesus Christ is God in the flesh, who always knew and knows the Father, and always knew and knows the Father's will, because He has always existed in relationship with the Father, and He leads His people in triumph, never to disobey the Father. Lastly, unlike Saul, the wicked king, Jesus our king, always trusted the Father, even when the Father was silent in the garden and upon the cross. Even when the Father was silent and upon the cross, Jesus trusted the Father, unlike Saul who trusted in his own ways. So how does all of this apply, quickly? How does this apply to us? Well, I think there's a couple different ways. First, I would say this, not all spirituality is equal. (laughs) I know I just committed the cardinal blasphemy in today's postmodern world, but not all spirituality is equal. It's not, nor is it equally valid. Many dabble in all sorts of of occultic things. Even today, there's all sorts of things, right? And I'm not talking about necessarily TV shows or anything like that. I I mean real occultic things. Astrology, not astronomy, but astrology. Ouija boards. 
fortune telling, palm reading, seances, witchcraft, new age crystals, tarot cards, you name it. It's everywhere in our culture. Once shunned, it's now openly evident in our culture. And listen, as I've said, many there are a lot of shams out there. I mean, there are people that are just good at reading people, right? They're good salesmen. But some, a very few, but some have very real powers given to them by the forces of darkness. And I'll say this. When we converted, when we were converted from our sin by Christ Jesus, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, we repented and are not to partake in these evil practices anymore. It is interesting to me that as you look at the church in Ephesus, it even says that a great number of the people in Ephesus practiced occultic practices and so much so that there was a small fortune that was burned up by the Christians there who were converted who forsook their wicked practices after their conversion to Christ. We too who are in Christ are not to, not to seek after these evil practices they have nothing for us. They have nothing. Nothing is gained by them. So, is it wrong to read books, watch movies, play games about witchcraft and magic? That's really a matter of your own conscience. I can't bind your conscience where the scriptures are, are, don't bind your conscience. But that is something for you to work through. But I will say this. There's, a whole lot, there's been a whole lot of silliness over the years from the church on this matter. Been a whole lot of silliness. And we need not fall into that silliness. We need not fall in that silliness. Fourthly, there are some professing Christians, and I'll say this, there are some professing Christians who are no different than the shamans and the necromancers. You say, well, now, that's a pretty heavy charge. It's a pretty, that's a pretty big charge for you to make, Pastor. How can you say that? Listen to how they pray. Listen to how they live. Watch how they live. Listen to how they pray. Watch their lives. And you will realize, and even, even I, I'm sure, have fallen into this at times, when we, what, the way we try to communicate with God and talk to God is through manipulation and is no different than the way the pagans try to get their pagan gods to work for them. God, if I just do this. God, if I just do that. God, if I just pray like this. God, if I'm just obedient enough. God, if I just love you enough. God, if I just make this sacrifice or that sacrifice. God, you've got to do this for me. The answer is no. Well, no, he doesn't. And that's no different than the pagan practices. It's no different than the pagan practices. And, and I'm not saying all Christians, but, but I am saying it's possible if we're not careful in watching our walk for us to try to manipulate God just the way the pagans do. And remember, Jesus even said in Matthew chapter 6, he says, don't pray like the pagans. I would even say this, some professing Christians can even be and are even led astray by some extra biblical supernatural experiences and knowledge. I can't tell you as a pastor the number of people that I have talked to who have told me, well, pastor, look, I know that the Bible says this, but let me tell you, I had an experience where I don't care. When you told me that the Bible said, but your experience said, I don't care. You've done entered into a world of wickedness when you can say the Bible says and add that but. No, no I don't care what your experience has been. The devil, it should not surprise us that the devil can pick up this offering plate, make it float around this room, whirling and twirling, and then set it right back down where it is. shouldn't surprise any of us that he could do that. 
But our extra-biblical supernatural experiences and knowledge cannot take place of thus says the Lord in the Scriptures. We are bound by sola scriptura. We are bound by thus says the Scriptures because this is what God has said. If we want to know what God has said, read your Bible. Read your Bible. Because God's Word is infallible and it is sufficient. We, while, while certainly God may grant us at times supernatural experiences, there are times when we may feel closer to Him by, and, and revive our hearts and revive our spirits, we must be careful that we're not given over to that. We must trust His Word even when the Father is silent. Even when it seems as if God is a million miles away, trust that behind the clouds, the dark clouds of providence shines the smiling face of God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your time that you have given us to assemble here. We would ask for your wisdom and grace in applying this text. Thank you that Jesus Christ is not like Saul, but he is the great high king who has, who has fully done everything that, has been call, that he has been called upon to do and that as a result... He has been given the name which is above every name, that in the name of Jesus every knee would bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. And all of this will one day be done for the glory of you, for your glory, Father. We would ask now that you would guide us and direct us. Help us not to seek experiences, but rather the word of God. Let us seek after the truth. Let us long for the word. Let us hunger for the word. Let us see that your word is sufficient. And let us keep ourselves there and lead our families in that. And, divide, and, and, and do not give us divided hearts, but may you unite our hearts that we may fear your name. And we pray this in Jesus' name.